Head for one last time to the book of James with me, please. The book of James. This is the last week we will be um, reading from this book and I'll be teaching from it. This is the last message in the series that we have entitled, uh, Don't Get the Wrong Idea. And so when you get to James, turn, actually, I probably should be turning there myself, actually. Get to chapter 3, chapter 3, and we're just going to read verses 13 to 18, 13 to 18. James says this, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. <clears throat> now you might be wondering why we're ending our series in chapter three because there's five chapters in James. Why aren't we ending in the end? Well, we've pretty much been through the whole book. Um, you might expect it to end at the end, but if you remember James, um, his structure of his book is a lot different than a lot of other books. It kind of jumps around a lot, which is why we've been jumping around a lot in the book. And part of James's scheme, if he has one, is that he actually puts what might be considered the foundational passage of the whole book right smack in the middle here. This is not unusual for somebody who is like a Hebrew writer who thinks in those ways, but we find what is possibly the thematic passage of the whole book right here at the end of chapter three. These verses obviously have a lot to do with something called wisdom, with wisdom, which is a theme that you see all over the place in this letter from James to his people, which is why a lot of Bible scholars actually look at James and they refer to James as what they call wisdom literature, because it's pretty much the closest thing we have in the New Testament to a book like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or some of those books from the Old Testament that are sharing a lot of, of, of formal wisdom with us. It's not wisdom literature, it's a letter, but it talks a lot about wisdom. And this is the place where James tackles this theme of wisdom head on, talks about it directly. And right away in verse 13 and 14, what we find out, those first couple of verses I read there, we see that James's concept of wisdom is very different than how a lot of people tend to think about wisdom. And so what James is telling us here in accordance with this theme throughout the book is don't get the wrong idea about wisdom. It's a word that got thrown around a lot back then, but there are different ways to think about it. And James says, most of us are thinking about it, maybe the wrong way, so don't get the idea. You might remember a few weeks ago, we looked at this word wisdom. And we came up with a couple of working definitions of it. And one of them was simply this, that wisdom is the ability to use our knowledge in a godly way. The ability to not just knowledge, not just having a lot of knowledge, not just having a high intelligence, not just having a lot of things that we know in our brain, but being able to use our knowledge, however much we have of it, in a godly way. That's, that's wisdom. It's a very practical, down-to-earth definition. And indeed, James's, James's idea of wisdom is extremely practical. It's very down-to-earth. It's very Monday morning. The word understanding here in verse 13, who among you, James says, is wise and understanding. That word understanding actually carries with it the idea of know-how, of skill, if you will. Even we might say of expertise. 
What James is really asking here is this. Who among you, who among you has the skill, the practical knowledge, the expertise to live a good life? To make the right decisions? To do the right things? In short, to live a truly excellent, worthwhile life? successful life. Who has the ability to do that? It's a good question, right? Wouldn't you like to have the kind of practical intelligence that will lead to a genuinely successful and rewarding life? Well, good. Then keep reading because James is going to spend the rest of the passage talking about wisdom. And in particular, James is going to identify two different kinds of wisdom, makes a very clear distinction between them. One kind of wisdom comes from the world, James says. Actually, he says the origins of this wisdom are demonic. And this kind of wisdom leads to one direction, to a certain place. And then there's another kind of wisdom that James says comes from above, that is from God. And that kind of wisdom is going to lead us to a very different place. And so what is the difference between these two kinds of wisdoms? And how can we tell which one we're living by? That's what I want to talk about today. So let's look at this worldly counterfeit form of wisdom first. James uses several words to describe the false wisdom. Uh, Some of the words he uses more than once. We have the word boasting, we have jealousy, and we have selfish ambition. Now we've noted several times, maybe even every week of this series, we've noted how James's readers, the people that originally got this letter back in the first century, most of them were Jewish Christians, but they had been scattered to different places throughout the Roman Empire in conjunction with persecution, or maybe some of them were Jews that had been won to Christ uh, through people who had gone around preaching Jesus in these areas, but most of them were in different places. And, and because of where they were and the cities and cultures in which they found themselves, they would be learning a lot about the Greeks' obsession with this thing called wisdom. The Greeks talked about wisdom all the time. In fact, you might remember that Paul in 1 Corinthians says it very plainly. He says, the Greeks seek Wisdom. That's what they want. Anybody ever heard of Socrates? Plato? Aristotle? Okay, these are the guys. These are the men who who the Greeks looked up to. They lived several generations before Jesus came on the scene. But they and those that followed them and followed after them spent a lot of time thinking about wisdom. And in particular thinking about what they would call the good life. The good life. Now what is the good life? What do we think about when we're living the good life? A little bit different for them. Their good life was not about getting rich and, and buying a mansion in the Greek Isles and sipping margaritas on the beach. That wasn't a, they didn't have margaritas back then. It was more about how to live a virtuous life, more about how to live a rewarding life, how to live a meaningful life. They were, they were trying to find out how, how to live the best possible authentic human life that could be lived. That was the good life. And different schools of philosophy developed throughout the the centuries. Philosophy, by the way, the word just means literally the love of wisdom, philosophy. And in the New Testament, we encounter some of these philosophers as they were there in the first centuries. For instance, in Acts 17, Paul goes to Mars Hill and he comes across some people that were called the Stoics. And the Stoics, those philosophers, sought meaning in life through cultivating a certain kind of contentment. We think about that today when we talk about somebody being Stoic. They can get through a lot of stuff without being hurt by it because they're, they're content. The Epicureans, on the other hand, that was another group that Paul encountered there in Athens. And they sought the good life through, usually through pleasure and through gratification of the senses. They thought that was the key to the good life. And there were other schools of thought at this time. But the common denominator in all these groups and what happened over time in the Greek world 
was that these teachers and these philosophers, especially the ones who were skilled in rhetoric and could teach really well and hold your attention for a long time, those guys became the celebrities of their day. They were very, very highly thought of and very much looked up, up to. There were a whole host of people who ran around the Mediterranean world spouting off their great knowledge, commanding large fees for their speaking engagements, and just basking in the admiration of all the people. Today, some of these guys would become megachurch pastors. And, and I say that knowing that being puffed up by knowledge and seeking the approval of men is a constant temptation for anyone you ever see who stands behind a pulpit on a regular basis. So if you're looking for a way to pray for me and other pastors that you know, pray that we'll be kept free from that spirit because it can happen. But it happens to everybody, potentially, because wherever, whenever the people of any culture or community begin to use knowledge or so-called wisdom as a means of status-seeking and a means of self-glorification, a means of self-justification, that, that, that your importance in the world is dependent upon how much you know and how wise you are and all that, to what James is calling here selfish ambition, it leads to jealousy, it leads to boasting, and when that spirit of so-called wisdom takes hold, when everybody around you and you, yourself too, when we're all just kind of going around rejoicing in how smart we are, especially compared to all those other moronic people who don't agree with us, that leads to chaos and, James says, every evil practice. In fact, this is a very real thing. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you will find out this is exactly what was happening at the time there in the church in Corinth, and it wasn't pretty. This kind of wisdom seeking and wisdom glorification had led to disunity, it had led to a shameless level of sexual immorality and all sorts of other problems in that church there. So what about today? What about today in our lives? How does this show up, this, this spirit of self-glorification by wisdom or knowledge? Well, how many, times, how many times do you and I get caught up in that spirit of having to prove how much we know and, and what I mean by that is we have to be on the right side of every issue. We, we learn to show contempt for the people that we disagree with, maybe even in a clever and sarcastic way. I have some skills there. You know, maybe we always have to have the last word in any kind of a heated discussion. Why? Because for a lot of us, one of the most horrible things that could ever happen to us would be somebody thinking that we were stupid or somebody maybe getting the upper hand on us in the eyes of of others. There's just too much at stake. Because today, today, when you discount my opinion, you're disrespecting me. And when that starts to happen, when that pattern takes hold in any kind of a group, a family, a workplace, a church, it leads to people taking sides. It leads to people dividing up into camps. And it leads to people talking badly about one another. And then it leads to all kinds of ungodly language and behavior. And by the way, this very spirit has torn a lot of churches apart especially in the last three years. It's rampant. Now that's probably the most obvious example of this demonic wisdom, especially as it pertains to the church. But is that the only form that, that this kind of satanic wisdom takes in our world today? I don't think so. I think there's a more subtle form of it, the so-called wisdom, but it, it leads us in the same direction and it affects a lot more people in our day and it's just a voice of our culture right now. And if you'll be patient with me, I'm going to kind of get deep with you here. So tune in and hang in there with me for about five minutes because I'm going to take you into the cultural weeds for a while and then I promise we'll come back out afterwards, okay? There is a, there is a slogan today. 
There is a slogan today that, that I think really speaks for us as, as a culture, both inside and outside the church sometimes. It's probably the most quoted phrase in high school yearbooks. It's probably the most quoted phrase at all. And it sounds really good. It sounds really good because it comes from Shakespeare. And Shakespeare, we know, had quite a way with words. So it's a phrase that comes from Hamlet, and it's probably the second most famous line in Hamlet. Now, you may or may not have read Hamlet, but you know some lines from Hamlet. You know the most famous thing is, to be or not to be, that is the question, right? And that's the most famous line from Hamlet. But only slightly less well-known and much more influential in our world today is this one. I'm just going to give you the first two words, and you can finish it. To thine, to thine own self be true. To thine own self be true. Doesn't that sound awesome? Now, on his face, on his face, that sounds like really good advice, right? Because we normally just take it to mean what? Be yourself, right? Be yourself. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. Don't get sucked in by the expectations of the people around you. Learn to live as the real you. And that's good advice for sure. Very good advice. None of us should try to be somebody else. But unfortunately, the phrase has morphed into something very different in how it's understood and how it's applied by a lot of people today. Shakespeare himself, by the way, when he writes these words, he puts them into the mouth of a character that he does not like very much. A guy by the name of Polonius, who is basically an obnoxious and annoying blowhard who keeps getting into everybody else's business and he never shuts up. So in the play, um, Polonius gets stabbed by mistake by Hamlet and he dies. But when Polonius dies, you're like, thank goodness, we don't have to listen to Polonius anymore. So that's, that's that character. But early on, before he dies, there's a scene in which Polonius is saying goodbye to his son Laertes because he's sending him off to France for some reason. And he rattles off a bunch of really wise-sounding sayings just one after the other. A couple of them you'll know. For instance, he says at this point, um, neither a borrower nor a lender be. Ever heard that one? A whole lot of other things there. And a lot of the things he says to his son are truly good advice. But a number of them, a number of them, like that one about borrowing and lending, can also be used as excuses to live a very self-centered, self-absorbed life. And when Polonius looks at Laertes and says, to thine own self be true, it doesn't just mean, son, be yourself. It's not just that. It also carries the sense of, hey, look out for number one. Act for your own benefit. T tend to your own needs first, and then you won't need to worry about kissing up to anybody else. And that's the sense of the quote that we've really taken to heart in a lot of ways today. I found a post about this actually on the internet recently. It was a personal growth blog by a guy named Nicholas Claremont. Never heard of him. I don't think the guy is necessarily a Christian. He didn't necessarily talk like one. But I think he hits the nail on the head and he says it better than I could. So let me just share part of, part of this with you and ask you to maybe listen for maybe a little echo of yourself or the way you think in these words. He says this, To thine own self be true is a way of saying that nothing at all matters more to how we should act than our own esteem. It is certainly beautifully phrased and invokes ideas with positive connotations, truth, self-ownership, individuality. But are these virtues really hiding a fundamental vice? They are. The phrase echoes something which I've heard many people repeat as a sort of mantra. I just really need to focus on me right now. In fact, the phrase appeals to our complacency, not to our resilience. Its function is to swell our laziness, 
not to stoke our resolve. Its use is to excuse our, excuse our disagreements with society, not to force us to reconcile them with fact. To thine own self be true is a universal excuse, a get out of jail free card from the prison of having to consider and acknowledge your own failings and biases and whims. I don't have to conform to the world. It has to conform to me. Doesn't matter what anyone thinks or what I know is good. This is who I am and I'm just being true to myself. So really it means not just be yourself, but you know what? I'm just, you know, it doesn't matter how ticked off you become because of my behavior. It doesn't matter how obnoxious I am. It doesn't matter how self-serving I am. It's just who I am. Deal with it. Now that post comes from 2013, but in these last 10 years, self-expression, self-actualization, and self-protection have become a religion in America. Here's how the thinking goes. Whatever else happens in my life, it is crucial that my identity, my words, and my choices be affirmed because I am what I choose. So if you don't support my choices, you're rejecting me as a person and I will not tolerate that. Now, this kind of thinking is, is not always obvious on the surface of our lives. It's easy to call it out in the culture, but it's hard to see it in ourselves. I think a lot of us have learned to be kind and courteous to people, even to be supportive and generous with other people to some extent. But when push comes to shove, when push comes to shove, if meeting someone else's needs or considering someone else's opinion or deferring to someone else's agenda above my own is going to threaten the rights, the reputations, or the possessions that I feel entitled to, then that person can go take a hike. Because at the end of the day, I have to come first or I'm not being true to myself. I can never love others, have you heard this one? Until I first love myself. Now that one sounds great and there's a lot of therapists that will tell you that. As profound as this has come to sound, it is really just another form of selfish ambition that James is talking about. Listen, newsflash, newsflash. You already love yourself. You do. That's why the Bible tells us what? To love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It assumes that we already love ourselves. Now, we may not always like ourselves. I don't like myself all the time. You probably don't like yourself all the time, but we're still committed to act in our own interests, which is really what love is all about, acting for the good of the one being loved. We all love ourselves. And whenever we define wisdom in a way that excuses and even encourages our natural selfishness that we already have, then we're headed down a road that James says leads to disorder and every vile practice. It's like he looked out his window and saw 2023. Okay, end of Paul's philosophizing. What's the opposite? What's the opposite of this worldly? If this, if this demonic kind of wisdom excuses worldly living and jealousy and selfish ambition, then what does the heavenly kind of wisdom look like? Well, it has very little to do with how much you know. It actually has very little to do with how high your IQ is. And it has everything to do with being able to put others before yourself. Let's look briefly at each of these words that James uses because these are beautiful words he uses here to describe the wisdom that comes from God. And by the way, 
Back in chapter one, with the first or second week we were in this series, we talked about praying for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, pray, and the Lord will give us wisdom without finding fault. Well, you know, when you pray for wisdom, usually you're praying to make a decision or something, right? Well, did you know that this is what you're praying for? The characteristics that we're gonna talk about now, this is what you'll be praying for. You're praying for how to demonstrate these qualities we're gonna talk about in your, in your daily life, at home, at work, at school, on the ball field, at church, in traffic, in line at the grocery store, in conversation, and yes, also in decision-making, whether it's the big big decisions that, that affect a lot of people and, and, and a lot of things in your life, or whether it's just the little decisions that you have to make in the spur of the moment. What kind of person will you be? So as we go through this list, just listen. Listen here. I'm not going to talk about the words for that long, but I'm going to try to define each one of them in kind of a practical way. So let the Spirit of God speak to you as you hear this about the, the ones that mo- might be are most relevant to where you are right now in your experience. Now, I'm going to be using the masculine pronoun just for simplicity's sake, but all of these descriptions will apply to both men and women, young people, old people, okay? So we can look at these next few minutes as giving us a very practical and down-to-earth portrait of the person who is wise in this godly way. So put this person up there and, and maybe compare yourself just for the next few minutes, okay? First word here really stands on its own up in verse 13. And it's probably the central idea to this wisdom. It's the word meekness. Meek, meekness. Meek, meekness does not mean weakness. We think it does sometimes, but it doesn't. I've even heard it referred to as a gentle strength. What meekness does mean is the exact opposite of the self-promotion and selfish ambition that we see in the other kind of wisdom. A meek person is unassuming. He is an entitled The truly wise person, James says, is meek. He doesn't demand his rights and his privileges. He doesn't cut in line, but lets the other person go first, even at the risk of missing out on something. He doesn't care that much about receiving praise. In fact, he'll usually deflect most of it onto other people. When the meek person gets upset about something or is anxious to get his point across, he will not resort to yelling, threatening, bullying, or belittling the other person, but he will speak to them with respect and gentleness and know he doesn't always have to have the last word. He's meek. Then going down to the list in verse 17, James says, first of all, the wise person is pure. The Greek word means clean, innocent, not polluted by sin. So the wise person walks closely with God and though he hasn't achieved perfection, he is growing in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. He keeps himself sexually pure. He controls his tongue. Remember Wes talking about that a couple weeks ago. He refuses to make ethical compromises to get ahead at work or in relationships. Though he may be falsely accused, he can never be blackmailed because he has nothing to hide. Next, the wise person is peaceable, peaceable. He never goes into a difficult situation looking for a fight. His very presence tends to relieve tension and put other people at ease. The next idea closely related to being peaceable was the quality of gentleness, gentleness. Now this this is different than the typical New Testament word for gentleness. In this case, the word means the wise person is not harsh and unyielding. He's not harsh and unyielding. When he has to exercise authority or even discipline, so think of maybe being a parent 
or a boss or an elder. He is not a tyrant or a taskmaster. Instead, he is respectful and considerate of the people under his care. He knows when it's appropriate to relax the rules to achieve true fairness and justice because he values the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. He's gentle. Next, the wise person is open to reason. His default when he's under authority is not to resist, but to comply. He is a joy to lead and he is a joy to work with. He will rarely be the squeaky wheel and he will not cause problems unless it's absolutely necessary. When you go to interact with this person, even in a difficult situation, you're never afraid that things will get unpleasant or out of hand because this person will not be unreasonable with you. Next, the wise person is full of mercy and good fruits. He is generous and compassionate. He's looking for ways to help other people. He shows up at church on a Sunday morning looking for someone to bless. He hurts when other people hurt. And when it's at all possible, he tries to do something about it. Next, the wise person is impartial. Now, this is a very tough word to translate. And it's, I thought it would be the idea from, of impartiality back from chapter two, but it's not. It's a different idea. The best word I can come up with here is consistent. Consistent. The wise person does not change from one day to the next. When you deal with this person, you always know what you're gonna get. Even if he's having a bad day, he won't take it out on you. In the same way, he doesn't change his attitude or his way of speaking depending on whom he's talking to. He treats everyone, men and women, rich people and poor people, pleasant people and difficult people with the same respect and consideration. And lastly, the wise person is sincere. The word literally means without hypocrisy, without hypocrisy. The wise person is never putting on a show for you. He will not be evasive or deceptive and he won't hide the truth. When he isn't able to tell you something, he'll let you know why. When he doesn't know the answer, he won't make something up. You don't have to second guess him because you know that he's being straight with you. He's sincere. Okay, so that's the list. Raise your hand if you got 100. Just kidding. This list can be pretty imposing, right? I know probably everyone in here, including me for sure, had to clench their teeth for one or two of these descriptions and say, okay, great. Well, there's something I can work on, right? But let, let me remind you of something, and this is a very important. There's a lot of really good practical instruction here, and those descriptions are really, really helpful for us, very practical. And for that matter, the whole book of James is like that. But please know this, James is not a self-improvement seminar, and neither is this sermon. James knows, James knows that in our own flesh, in our own fallen nature, we do not have the capacity to be like this guy, at least not on any kind of consistent basis. So what are we supposed to do? Well, there may be a hint about it over in verse 18, the last verse that we read here. And he says this, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So just looking at this, on its face, we see that true wisdom, when it's applied to life, brings peace. But does this verse maybe remind you of anything else in the Bible or maybe something else that somebody else said at one point? Like a lot of passages in James, this one is an echo 
of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was talking to all those people back in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Remember what Jesus said? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And we know that Jesus was not just the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. We, we went through that sermon a couple years ago here, and we found out that Jesus is not just the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. He's the embodiment of it. His life was a picture of his own teachings. Jesus himself, the original Son of God, was the ultimate peacemaker. Now, that wasn't so obvious during his lifetime, right? Because his earthly ministry actually divided people a lot of the time because he called for such a radical change of heart and he upset a lot of people. So people did get divided. But you know what? In the end, in the end of Jesus' life, and this is kind of ironic, Jesus brought a lot of people together, didn't he? He brought a lot of people together. All sorts of people who couldn't get along with each other for whatever reason actually set aside their differences in pursuit of a common goal, which was what? To get rid of him. Romans and Jews. Pharisees and Sadducees. Pilate and Herod. All people that didn't get along and then suddenly they found they had a common goal. To get rid of this man. And so they put him to death on a cross. They turned all of their bitterness and acrimony away from one another and toward him, and he absorbed all of it. All the world's hatred, all the world's enmity, all their bitterness, all their violent anger was concentrated on Jesus Christ. And what was the result? Isaiah says it this way. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, said Jesus to his disciples the night before he died. Not as the world gives, he says. Not the false kind of peace. You see, there's a different kind of peace. There's there's an inner peace. There's a lasting peace. There's a forgiving peace. But first, in order to have that peace in ourselves, we need to have peace with God. And Jesus achieved that for us on the cross by dying in our place to absorb not only evil human anger, but also God's righteous anger at our sin. And now, then being justified by faith, we can have peace with God. That peace is not just the assurance of our ultimate salvation, and it is that, but that peace that we have from God is also the foundation of our wisdom, the real wisdom, the wisdom that in James 3.18 results in righteous living and brings peace into all of the people and all of the situation around us, even if you have to absorb someone else's evil anger in order to do it. Why? Because when God has set your heart at peace, you don't need to be jealous. You don't need to boast. You don't need to have selfish ambition. You don't have to always have the last word. You don't have to live for the affirmation of others. And you have been set free from the bondage to your fears. Because it's fear and insecurity. The sneaking suspicion that we need to do something to build ourselves up and justify our own existence It's that fear that tends to make us self-protective and self-promoting and ultimately self-absorbed and not being able to truly yield to or prioritize someone else above ourselves. 
But, and here's the last word really, for those of you who are in Christ, you don't need to go there. You don't need to go there. You're already accepted, affirmed, honored, and loved. And nothing that anybody ever does to you or anybody ever says to you will take that away. Let's pray as the worship team comes.